0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: This is Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. Some of our best debates have been those where we've peered over the horizon at coming technological breakthroughs like genetic engineering or artificial intelligence, and we have asked, just because we can, does that mean we should? Now there's another potentially life-changing technology on the horizon, solar geoengineering. It's known also as solar radiation modification or management, and it's a proposed set of technologies that aim to reflect some sunlight away from the Earth and to reduce the inflow of solar energy, thereby partially reducing global temperatures. Basically, it's suggesting that the amount of heat that we get from the sun can be controlled. This includes ideas like putting reflective materials on your roof or putting mirrors into orbit or injecting aerosols into the stratosphere to effectively act like kind of a global sunblock. You get the idea. The question is, are these ideas feasible? And if they're feasible, are they desirable? We have two teams of two experts who spent years thinking about this topic to argue for and against this question. Is engineering solar radiation a crazy idea? This debate was taped live in New York City in 2019, and since then, well, everyone is still arguing about it. In January 2022, a group of scientists and scholars from all over the world, including one of our debaters, signed an open letter calling for a worldwide pause on all exploration of solar geoengineering. A year later, February 2023, there was another open letter, this time arguing that it's essential that we do more research into this technology. Two of our debaters signed that resolution, So in honor of the International Day of Clean Energy, we thought we would share this fascinating and topical debate once again, because if anything, it's even more topical now. Also, just a quick note, this debate includes a vote at the end, which we used to do for all of our debates. Now let's meet our debaters. Starting first with the team arguing for that resolution, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Clive Hamilton. Clive, you've come a long, long way to be part of this debate. You're a professor at Charles Sturt University in Canberra, Australia. You are a climate advocate, a best-selling author. Some of your books include Earth Masters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. Most recently, your book, Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia, was published finally after three other publishers pulled out, signing fear of punishment from Beijing, and that book then became an immediate bestseller. So congratulations to that, and thanks for being here, Clive. And now let's meet your partner. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Anjali Vishwamohanan. You're a scholar at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford. You're a lawyer. You're an energy policy enthusiast. Uh, Previously, you've worked with the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water in New Delhi on renewable energy policy, finance, and governance. It's great to have you, Anjali, on Intelligence Thank you.
2: I'm very happy to be here.
1: Thanks very much. So two of our debaters came a very long way, and the others also traveled just not quite as far. Let's welcome the team arguing against the resolution, starting first with David Keith. You've worked at the, uh, the meeting point of climate science and energy technology and public policy for 25 years. You're a professor at Harvard, where you led the development of its solar geoengineering research program. You're the founder of Carbon Engineering. That's a company developing technology to capture CO2 from ambient air. Uh, Time magazine named you one of its heroes of the environment. That must be a burden to carry, but I want to thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Intimidating to be here and your partner also arguing against the resolution. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Ted Parson. You study international environmental law and policy, and the role of science and technology in policy making. You're a professor of environmental law at UCLA, uh, co-director of the Emmett Institute on Climate Change and Environment there. You've worked and consulted for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the UN's Environment Program. Ted, it is great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. So here they are, our four debaters, ready to get started. And let's move on to round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first, for the resolution, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Oxford scholar Anjali Vishwamohanan.
2: This debate on solar geoengineering has been rife within the scientific, the academic, and the policy circles. But this is one of the first few instances of an open and hopefully engaging public conversations on this topic. One of the first things that came to my mind when I thought about what I'd like to speak on tonight is this episode from this American sci-fi sitcom called Rick and Morty. The sitcom revolves around two main characters, which is this nutty scientist grandfather Rick and his naive teenage grandson, Morty. So in this particular episode, um, Morty has some trouble uh, speaking to a girl that he fancies at his school. And Rick helps him through this process by developing a love portion of sorts. As is the case with most of Rick's inventions and solutions, things go horribly wrong and the entire world is destroyed. Now, the reason that I've brought up this episode is not to imply by any means that any of the scientists involved behind climate geoengineering are crazy. Not at all. The whole disaster could have been avoided if Rick, being the grandfather and the wiser and more competent person, had pointed out that instead of looking for a quick fix in the form of a love portion, Morty should have just taken time to muster courage on his own and go speak to the girl in a while. Now, on similar lines, the problem we are discussing tonight is global warming. And solar geoengineering is perhaps an answer to the question of how can we most effectively cool the earth fast. But I think the real question is, how can we most effectively cool the Earth fast and keep it that way in the long run? Solar geoengineering does not affect the processes that are making the world warm. It merely attempts to stop or slow the process and, getting, and making the effects from getting worse, buying us more time to do what we should already be doing, which is changing our energy sources and cutting our profligate consumption. Any such effort to buy us more time is only likely to enable more opportunists to step in and benefit in wily ways from the shifting landscape. There are wide differences of opinions even amongst the scientists working on this technology regarding the effectiveness of this technology, what the real-world risks of this technology are, and to what extent these risks can be contained. The list of negative impacts on deployment is quite long, but one of the most immediate impacts that will be felt will be through the change in the precipitation cycles. It will also reduce the amount of solar radiation reaching the Earth's surface. This will affect both crop yields and also diminishing the potential of solar energy, which is one of the biggest alternatives that has been contemplated to fossil fuel energy generation. I am also certain that at some point during the discussion today, we are likely to hear that solar geoengineering is intended to benefit the most vulnerable populations, protecting them from the harms of climate change. But what may not be explained as clearly is that there are going to be winners and losers in this bid to reconfigure climate. To conclude, the world has a scientific understanding, the technological capacity, and the financial means to tackle climate change at its source without considering solar geoengineering.
1: Thank you, Antelope, from The resolution, again, engineering, solar radiation, is a crazy idea, and here to make his opening statement against this resolution, which means he is in favour of the idea, UCLA professor Ted Parson. Geoengineering
0: does sound crazy when you first hear about it. That's why, for the past ten years or so, our opponents have won. Talking about geoengineering is pretty much taboo in polite scientific and environmental company. It's been starved of research support and marginalized in climate change assessments. But this is dangerous. Now, to talk sensibly about geoengineering, you have to consider the climate change risks that it's intended to combat. How bad they are, and what other preferred ways there are to reduce them. You know the headlines. We've already heated the earth about 2 degrees Fahrenheit, and we're on track to continue heating another 2 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit within the lifetimes of today's children. Stopping climate change requires reducing human greenhouse gas emissions to zero. But such a vast economic and technological transformation is a project of decades, not years. And despite positive recent signs, like the Paris Accords and the rapid recent gains in solar and wind energy, we've barely started. And even with a crash program, it's probably too late to limit climate change to safe levels by cutting emissions alone. Now, cutting emissions isn't our only tool. We can also remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. This can help, maybe a lot. But we're relying on it now to a dangerous degree. The most optimistic climate projections all assume that we'll scale this up rapidly from zero to billions of tons a year. This reliance on technologies which are not fully developed or tested is a huge gamble. And even if this does work, it's probably too slow. Removing CO2 from the atmosphere is like draining a lake through a straw. So deep emission cuts and carbon removal are both essential, but they may not be enough soon enough. We need something else, and geoengineering might be that something else. Now, I'll address the two biggest policy concerns that have been raised about geoengineering. First, can it be governed at all? Geoengineering presently looks like it might be cheap and easy, at least cheap and easy to do it crudely. This is actually a problem for governance, because it may put the capability within the reach of more than a dozen nations. As a result, if we should ever face decisions about using it, we would want them to be under effective international control. Building this international control won't be easy, but nations have come together many times to address global challenges, adequately, even if not perfectly. Think about the post-war creation of the United Nations, or the global international economic order, or more recently, the successful global phase-out of ozone-depleting chemicals there are simply no grounds to claim that building the needed governance capacity is impossible. The second big objection to studying or normalizing geoengineering is that it will tempt us away from the essential work of cutting emissions. Research suggests the opposite. When people learn about geoengineering, their support for emissions cuts gets stronger, not weaker. They don't see it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They see it as a signal of alarm, If you're thinking about doing something this radical and scary, then climate change must be really bad. In conclusion, the gravity of climate risks demands looking at all responses, even those that may at first seem frightening. There are plenty of grounds for concern about geoengineering, but there is no basis for calling these insurmountable without serious examination. Nor is there any basis to decide in advance that the risks of a world aware of geoengineering are worse than those of a world with severe climate change and no means available to limit it in time. Just as other technologies that carry risks as well as benefits are not crazy, chemotherapy for cancer treatments, vaccines for infectious diseases, geoengineering is not crazy.
1: I'm John Donvan. This is Open to Debate, More of our conversation when we return. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is open to debate. Let's jump right back into our discussion. And a reminder of what's going on we are halfway through the opening round of this debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing out this resolution. Engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Debating for the resolution, Clive Hamilton, author of Earthmasters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. Ladies
3: and gentlemen, Clive Hamilton. So we're here tonight debating geoengineering because the big carbon polluting nations uh, of the world are so beset by political, social and ethical failings that they have shifted the Earth's climate system through rapid increases in greenhouse gas emissions to a point where we're uh, on track to see an unfolding catastrophe. And these nations have done it in full knowledge of the consequences. The same political institutions and the same people running those institutions who have so mismanaged the emissions of greenhouse gas emissions around the world will be responsible for deploying the solar shield between the earth and the sun. Who would you trust to have their hand on the global thermostat. That is, the power to turn the Earth's temperature up a bit, down a bit, to change the weather in ways that may benefit Chinese people at the expense of Indian people, Americans at the expense of Africans. Who should make the decision? Should the Kremlin make the decision? Should the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party make the decision? Should Donald Trump make the decision. Could we expect to see a tweet one morning? Hey, this heat wave down at Mar-a-Lago is getting out of control, so I've instructed the US Climate Regulatory Authority to turn it down. Turn it down. <laughs> Our opponents have put a great deal of thought into countering those who argue that solar geoengineering would unintentionally harm some nations while benefiting others. But we, on our side, we're concerned about the intentional harms. That is, when those who have their hand on the global thermostat use it to deliberately damage their adversaries. After all, the generals have always dreamed of controlling the weather. It gives a decisive military advantage. Um, it's not what's known as a force multiplier. Any program of solar geoengineering will inevitably involve the military. It's a strategic issue. And so the landmark 2014 report on solar geoengineering by the US uh, National Research Council was partly funded by the CIA. The CIA wanted to know if America's adversaries could use solar geoengineering to damage the interests of the United States. The militaries around the world, as well as the intelligence agencies, are watching this debate because they're anxious about the strategic implications of putting a shield uh, between the sun and the earth. Each decision will change the weather conditions of some people more than others in different ways. Who would you trust to have such power? Our opponents believe that it will be done on the advice of a cohort of clever, rational scientists. But that's not how the world works. And even if it did... We may not get a Professor Keith in charge. We may get a Dr. Strangelove. Thank you, Clive Hamilton.
1: And here to make his opening statement against this resolution, David Keith, Harvard professor and founder of Carbon Engineering. Ladies and gentlemen, David Keith. Thank you. If you want a stable climate, you must stop putting
4: CO2 in the atmosphere. Nothing about solar geoengineering changes that essential fact in any way at all. Emissions cuts are absolutely necessary, absolutely possible, very doable. The increasing low price of solar power is fantastic, and that, combined with the youth activism we're seeing, gives me some hope of real political change. Even on that marvellous day where emissions are finally brought to zero, the climate problem is not solved. Climate risk is proportional to cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide. When we bring emissions to zero... We have simply stopped building up that underlying risk. We have not eliminated it. We will also need to adapt. We can adapt to reduce climate risks by measures such as air conditioners or dikes. But that also cannot be a complete solution. Polar bears cannot take advantage of air conditioners, and dikes can only hold back water in some places, particularly rich ones. The CO2 we put in the atmosphere has an environmental footprint that lasts for thousands of years. Even once emissions are brought to zero, if we want to reduce the underlying long-run risk of climate change, solar geoengineering doesn't help. We need to do it by removing CO2 from the atmosphere. But that is inherently a slow process. So solar geoengineering may allow us to significantly reduce, reduce the risks of the CO2 that's in the atmosphere. It is no panacea, but the evidence that it can reduce risks is strong. Essentially, every major climate model has been run looking at how solar geoengineering works, and they find that if it is done relatively uniformly over the planet, as could be achieved with aerosols in the stratosphere, as a supplement to emissions cuts, not as a substitute for them, we find that in essentially every region, climate risks are reduced, not just warming, but extreme precipitation, uh, tropical cyclones, sea level rise. Our opponents have claimed that this is theory, that we shouldn't trust these models. But they're the same models as are used to understand the risks of building up CO2 in the atmosphere. You cannot say that you believe the models that tell us how risky CO2 is in the atmosphere, which you should, and say that those models have nothing meaningful to say about how aerosols in the stratosphere might reduce risks. The best claim that I think one can make about solar geoengineering is that a combination of emissions cuts and solar geoengineering might be less dangerous than emissions cuts alone. If the motion tonight was, should we start geoengineering, I would vote no. But the motion tonight is engineering solar radiation is crazy. And what crazy means is that you never want to do it under any circumstance. It means you are so sure you don't want to do it that you don't want to do research, lest that tempt people to do it. It means you don't even want to talk about it, lest people get dangerous ideas in their head. Our contention is that solar geoengineering might be part of the way that humans manage environmental risks of climate change this century.
1: Thank you, David Keith. And that concludes round one of this debate where our resolution is, engineering, solar radiation is a crazy idea. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at the Kay Playhouse in New York City the team arguing for the resolution, which means that they are highly skeptical of the idea of solar radiation. Anjali Vishwamohanan and uh, Clive Hamilton basically taking the position, do we really need Geoengineering. They say that the real need is getting to the point of total emission cuts, that solar geoengineering represents a quick fix. At best, it buys time to do what we should be doing. They doubt very much that in that bought time, the right thing will be done. They talk about negative impacts on tropical forests, on the ozone layer, on crop yields, on the potential actually to use solar energy since some of the sun's rays will be blocked. They talk about the fact that there will be winners and losers, and they raise the prospect that the global north will take control of this, if not the military, and that the losers will be the powerless. And the large question they raise is the question of who will be in charge? Who will uh, have governance over this? And they raise uh, very, very serious questions about wanting to trust the hand of whoever controls the thermostat. The team arguing against the resolution, which means that they are arguing for, at a minimum, further research, study, and exploration of the concept. Ted Parson and David Keith, they say, sure. On first glance, it does sound crazy, but they're arguing that the idea should be taken seriously. They agree that the end goal should be cuts to zero carbon, but that the clock is ticking and that we're already past the point where damage has been done. That the idea of, of geoengineering should be done in concert with cuts because we already need the shield Before we actually begin the competitive part of the conversation, I would just like to get a a concrete picture of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about putting aerosols into the atmosphere. I did a radio interview and somebody's question to me was, is it going to smell? Is the sky going to look different? how will those things get there? And I thought, you know, these are practical questions for the layperson. Well, there are many ways that it might be done, but if it was aerosols in the
4: stratosphere, it would likely be put there by airplanes, uh, a number of sort of 20 or 30 airplanes by mid-century operating from a few airfields. That's one way it could be done. And, and, they, the, and they would go up every day and do this? They'd be flying continuously putting up aerosols. And the aerosols naturally spread evenly in the stratosphere. It's actually very hard, so you can't get them in one place to block whether That's actually impossible if you want to. Uh, stratosphere things spread pretty evenly, and so you'd be bringing aerosols up there and they'd be spreading over the stratosphere.
1: And, and what's the chemical being discussed? So
4: the most best understood chemical is sulfates or sulfuric acid. So it's the same thing that is naturally in the stratosphere, both from volcanoes and natural emissions, but there's a bunch of other ideas. And so yeah. we
1: all agree to that. And will it smell? And will it, the sky look different?
3: yes. It will, be, it will whiten the sky. No, the sky would, well... Oh, now we're off and
4: running. This gets into the question of, of <laughs> how much bit. we're doing. Okay. So if you did enough solar geoengineering to, say, offset the effects of four times CO2, taking you all the way back to pre-industrial, and if you did it in the f- sort of way that makes the biggest particles, which would be crazy, then you can see some whitening.
1: So I just want to ask the audience here in New York, have you had enough of a sketch of what it is we're talking about? Okay. I'm I'm taking your word for it because I I get it also. But I want to respond to two points that Anjali made at
4: the beginning. One is she said that um, it would make the precipitation change. That's absolutely correct, but you didn't say which direction. And of course, one of the big risks of climate change is that precip and especially intense precipitation goes up. And what solar geoengineering does is it tends to reduce that. So you kind of hid from the audience the fact that one of the major risks of climate change, for example, extreme tropical cyclones, are not
1: increased, but reduced by solar geoengineering. Okay, since, you, since you put a specific yeah. out there, I want to let Anjali respond to that if you would like to.
2: I agree with uh, with what um, David said, that the precipitation levels has sort of gone up with global warming, and David's plan with, um, and the general plan with solar geoengineering is, is generally to bring back precipitation to what it was um, at earlier levels. But... I think the real point to really think about here is that a lot of countries have sort of adapted to climate change over the years. It's not something that started today or yesterday. So so a lot of, um, say... Um, crop growth and a lot of the agricultural seasons in different countries have also adapted to climate change and the sudden change back to what it was may not um, necessarily be in everybody's best interest. I,
4: I need to come in and say that is absolutely not my plan. I think that would be nutty. I've never advocated that. I actually don't know anybody who is. What the people who seem to be advocating... For, for doing so. First of all, what we're advocating for is understanding. I don't think I have a plan. I really don't. Okay. Yeah. Let's Ted at it. May I, I comment on this? Yeah.
0: So there actually is a lot of confusion between scientific results and things that people propose might be reasonable bases for action. It would probably be extraordinarily damaging and destructive to let CO2 go to three or four times pre-industrial levels and then hammer the Earth with solar geoengineering to bring it back to pre-industrial. I don't know anybody who's ever proposed that that would be a sensible idea. Often in scientific studies, if you have constraints on what you're able to do, you wanna hit a system, an artificial system or a small system really hard to observe how it responds. But no one in their right mind would propose acting in that way in the real earth that we all have to live in. The broader point here is that we're all arguing about hypotheticals because nobody knows what interventions might be feasible, fair in their effects, desirable... We don't even well, know that the main form of intervention would remain sulfur. Let, uh, let, let's let Anjali jump in on this.
2: I think um, it is very reasonable to assume that once, we are, once we're talking about research and modeling, that we would always try and see what would happen if we increase sulfate aerosols in the, in the atmosphere like, by 10 times as what we initially planned, because we are all initially modeling. We're trying to see what the impacts of it would be on the Earth. And it's all research. It's, it's nothing that, we, we're not deploying it, but we're trying to see what the impacts of different circumstances would be on the earth. Is, am I not right yeah. in saying that?
0: I, I'm not criticizing these scientific studies. I'm agreeing that these are useful ways to get information. Yes. What I'm, what and I'm I criticizing agree with is that. the misunderstanding that says because we studied a huge hit like that in a model, that's what we're advocating doing.
2: I, do, I, I, I completely agree with that. But my point is that once that information is out there, that in case we, we increase the amount of aerosols in the atmosphere, that might reduce the warming further. That might just instigate a bunch of players in the market to increase their emissions and not follow government uh, regulations.
3: Clive, Clive,
1: there is sort of a, both sides have raised something of a more of a philosophical issue. You've raised the, the concern about moral hazard that if this tool exists, that the pressure to cut carbon emissions to zero will be lifted. Your opponents are making a different argument. Their argument is: let's find some more of the answers to the questions you're raising. Let's take on their their point that let's just look into it and find
3: out. We have to consider how. In practice, this kind of grand technology is going to play out uh, politically uh, in policy. We're not attempting to close down the debate at all. I mean, we're here tonight. We jumped at the chance to debate this uh, in public. What we're worried about is the way in which a, a, a research program without proper governance will be taken over by particular groups, that a constituency will emerge. So who will carry out the research? what ethical guidelines they will follow, and in particular, who will own the results? Because there's already been a rush of people taking out patents on geoengineering technologies, privatising it, including uh, aspects of solar geoengineering. So we have to consider the political implications. Research is never pure. It always takes place in a social and institutional context. So you, you alone on the panel raised the issue of potential disparities
1: of control between a small group of powerful nations who historically put most of the carbon into the air, uh, making decisions for you know, North versus South. And your opponents, expressed a kind of optimism that that's a, that's a fixable problem. Not, not merely conceivably fixable, but, but that historically the, the, the track record is pretty good when something big has to be done that nations can come together and do it the right way. What is your response to that?
2: I think there is generally a disconnect between advancement of science in the US as opposed to perhaps the rest of the world. There is a sort of a techno-optimist approach that is in conflict with the values that a lot of the other countries and regional communities place as inherent in some technologies that is being developed. In solar geoengineering specifically, the difference in approach is particularly apparent in how some countries like the United Kingdom and Germany have withdrawn support for geoengineering research in their countries. In light of these differences in opinions on how we want to really proceed on the technology, Without there being a global governance framework where every country is on board on how we proceed on the next steps on climate change mitigation or any step forward on climate change, there has to be a global governance framework.
1: And and you think that's unlikely to happen?
2: Yeah, I think that's unlikely. Let's take it
1: back to Ted. You, You were more optimistic about that.
0: I am. Let me stipulate again, we're all arguing about hypotheticals. What would a world be like in which there had been some decision made to develop and use these technologies, and who would be controlling it, what would be the impact? You're absolutely right that the issue of sectional control by a powerful group is a serious concern. There's a couple of reasons to think that geoengineering is likely to not be a particularly pernicious problem. Uh, in terms of effective and equitable governance relative to all the ones that we face. First of all, uh, there's this worry that the fossil interests will take it, sort of capture the debate and basically advocate too much and use that as a justification for continuing to pollute and not cutting
1: emissions. You're talking coal and petroleum gas industry? Yes,
0: yeah. uh, petroleum and gas. We're talking about climate denial organisations. We'll just move from saying climate change is nonsense, it's not real, to saying, oh, now we've decided it's real, but here's the solution, we still don't need to cut emissions. Um, That absolutely merits concern and attention. But the oddity is that all the evidence that exists goes the other way. If this is ever used which is not what we're advocating, arguing tonight, my guess is
3: it will look like a dreary public works project. A dreary public works project transforming the atmosphere of planet Earth? I don't think so. And when you think, as, uh, as I suggested, that this would, is a strategic issue, it has military implications, the military are all already watching this very carefully, I think it's a profound issue of geopolitics. I'm John Donvan. This is Open to Debate.
1: More from our debaters Right after this, welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Open to Debate. Let's return to our Q and I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this resolution: engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Let's go to audience questions, please. Um, just raise your hands, and I'll call on you. Right down in the front here. Hi, I'm Bonnie. If it is so cheap. Is there a a risk that all the geopolitical agreements will be put aside by someone like Elon Musk just doing it? Ted Parson.
0: No, no, because any megalomaniac individual entrepreneur is a citizen of some country and their enterprises operate under the legal jurisdiction of some country or countries. States have the authority. And so if it's ever done it will very likely, almost certainly, be under the authority of states. We might mistrust the competency and integrity of state decision-making, and I don't want to be any slouch in believing in political folly, (laughs) but we don't need to worry about Dr. Evil or Elon Musk or Bill Gates doing it on their own.
2: I think um, it is unfair to not point out that there have been instances of individuals um, attempting to test these technologies on their own in terms of um, some ocean acidification that has been done off the coast of um, Canada, and that has been only discovered much later, and it, ha- it has caused a lot of um, impact on the, the sea life in, in that area. So th-
1: this was where a bunch of iron was dumped into yes. the water in order to spur algae growth to get the algae yes. to... Yes. Okay, so I don't think most people know that that actually... Some guy did that. And so, and some guy did it,
0: and then the government of Canada forcefully think, asserted think this, its authority. Yeah. And,
4: and they did so little, it actually had no impact. It was a completely terrible stunt, but the point is the state ruled,
3: as it would. Yeah. Well, I just come back to Musk and Gates and so on. I mean, Bill Gates has uh, put a few million dollars into uh, supporting uh, research into geoengineering. What it tells you is that there's, it's the American techno fix. Silicon Valley love these kinds of uh, grand schemes. We'll just take control of the earth. You know, it's a technological solution that proves, once again, uh, the ingenuity of humankind in our intervention over nature. And for people like us, uh, we find this extremely worrying. Um, Right there, if you could stand up...
4: I might have missed this in the debate, but I'm wondering if you can speak to, in case I didn't miss it, what happens to the sulfuric acid after it's been daily, hourly, pumped into the stratosphere? I'm reading through the list of health effects of sulfuric acid right now, and it doesn't sound great. And then my other question is, as we are talking about reducing emissions to zero, where are the solar-powered trucks that are going to deliver the sulfuric acid? Where are the solar-powered planes? Isn't it somewhat ironic at least, to use fossil fuels to put sulfuric acid into the stratosphere. David Keith. So sulfuric acid is dangerous, and and sulfate aerosols kill people. The numbers matter. So right now in the lower atmosphere, we put about 50 million tons a year of sulfates, and along with other things, they shorten the lives of people in very polluted cities by years. At the peak, if you were doing solar geoengineering the way I've been talking, you'd be putting about one or two million tons into the stratosphere, where it would come down evenly. We've actually worked with people who are leading health experts who have looked at this, and it turns out that the sulfates already in the the atmosphere cool the planet a bit today. Sulfates in the stratosphere would cool the planet
1: with a thousand times smaller health impact. I want to ask something. Angela, you you covered a lot of material in your opening, but I think I heard you say that putting this stuff into the atmosphere could compromise the effectiveness of solar-powered devices, you know, gathering... Uh, on the ground? Did I hear you correctly?
2: Yes. In
1: in other words, if these solar energy needs the sun and you're putting something to block the sun, you're cutting off its power source. I I understand that was your argument.
2: And, And so basically to have a coherent strategy on climate change and we are all working towards building renewable energy sources into our whole energy generation system and then we come up with this solution which is only going to reduce the the feasibility of this one scenario where we're using solar energy to power our systems. And that is what um, solar technology is. So, energy yeah, it sounds means, like right? you kind of
1: catch 22. I'm
4: wondering yeah. how your opponents um, respond to that. Numbers matter. So, the, the things we're talking about would reduce sunlight by of order 1%. But it turns out that solar panels work less well than they're hot. So, it doesn't actually reduce the solar output by 1%. It's less than 1% because the panels become more efficient when they're cooler. And uh, what this effectively does is it raises the cost of solar panels by something under 1%. In the last four years or so, the cost of solar panels fell by a factor of three. So while there are a lot of things wrong with solar geoengineering, I think that kind of less than 1% change over a century in the cost of solar panels is not credibly one of them. Another question?
1: Right down front here.
4: Thank you very much. My name's Yang. So my question is, uh, what do you see uh, as the... urgency of this issue. So because I think whether we should call it crazy depends on what actually we see it. Do we see it as our last resort to like save the humankind or do we say it's just one of the twenty options that we can have, which we have yeah. the time to really study. That's it a one great by one? great
1: question. Can I rephrase it and make sure you agree with this and put it to David Keith? So I think the question is about the urgency of this Figuring out if this is the right solution or not?
4: It certainly isn't the right solution, and it's not a solution. But the question is, is it useful to reduce risks this century? And I think there's a lot of evidence that it could be very useful, enough evidence that it makes sense to understand it much better, including think about how it would be governed. You had a great question about whether there are 20 different things. I think there are really kind of about four or five big buckets. The most important is cutting emissions, there's this thing, carbon removal, you've been hearing about. There's adaptation, reducing local risks. And there's solar geoengineering. There are not a whole bunch more, I would say. Anjali, would you like to join
2: I think um, the way to really think about this is that the political will to addressing climate change has never been stronger. And perhaps we, as as the world, got started on this very late. But I feel that we finally have things in place to start work on fixing this problem that we have. And by talking about any other technology that would distract our efforts at the moment, would just fizzle our efforts towards working on mitigation and adaptation and all the technologies that we know will work. And the thing that I want to highlight here is that the technologies that we are advocating, we know it will work. And all of the risks associated with solo geoengineering keeps it from being a technology that we know will work.
3: Clive, did you want to add to that? I think the killer objection to it, which hasn't been mentioned yet, is that it's been estimated that if we did send the planes up, uh, it would take at least 10 years of gathering data before we knew whether it worked, before we could separate out the effects of sulphate aerosol spraying from uh, natural climate variability and the effects of um, global warming itself. And so think about that. Let's say 10 or so years Um, The the world's climate is changing, but we don't know whether it's due to uh, the sulphate aerosol spraying. So if the monsoon failed in Pakistan or or there was a long drought in the the Sahel, would those people start blaming the scientists at the Climate Regulation Authority in Arizona or Tashkent or wherever it might be? You bet they would. Of course, they'd look to the scientists, and the scientists could only say, well, we don't really know whether that drought or that uh, monsoon failure is due to the, the, what we're doing. take that
1: to, to David or Ted. Are we talking about actually needing something like a decade-long experiment to figure out if it's working or not? Ten years is
4: reasonable? There's no, no simple answer, but I, I want to push back on the idea that we know that emissions cuts will work. We know emissions cuts will work to cut emissions.
1: Would either of you like to respond to, to where we are? Um, I, I think that question of ten years is still... Yeah, there's still two there. things. That on
0: the 10 year question, you could see effects faster if you hammered with a huge intervention, but that would be a dangerous thing to do. It would be a dangerous thing to do, whether it was for the purpose of pushing the climate that far or for the purpose of understanding the effect. Uh, can I also comment on intentionality versus inadvertent? No, so it, you
1: may not. Yes. No, yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, we already are making an enormous and clearly destructive perturbation to the atmosphere, and the fact that it is the inadvertent side effect of things that people have done for 150 years for good reasons of advancing prosperity and getting energy and so on, doesn't let us off the hook. The blameworthiness is present and large, and the differences with an intervention being intentional, I think, lie in the domain of practical political calculations.
3: Think of it from the point of view of the peasant farmer in Pakistan and the, the rains have failed. There's, uh, people are starting to go hungry. You know that someone somewhere in the world is messing with the climate system. It's not, it's not an act of God. And uh, a political stirrer comes along and tells you America, the great Satan, is messing with your climate. You've got a massive political problem.
1: And that concludes round two of this debate, (laughs) where our resolution is engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. And now we move on to round three. Round three consists of closing statements from each debater in turn, making her closing statement in support of the motion that engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Please welcome again Oxford scholar Anjali Vishwamohanan.
2: It is important to recognize that at this point, solar geoengineering is riddled with uncertainties. Former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon warns that engineering solar radiation could risk exacerbating wider threats to international peace and security. Without complete global scientific and political cooperation, there are high chances of misuse of solar geoengineering, the impacts of which will bear down predominantly on the global south than it will in the rest of the world. The first attempt at establishing a global governance regime was initiated at the UN Environment Assembly held in Nairobi last month. The resolution on geoengineering failed for some reasons, which included the forum of where it was raised, but more interestingly, regarding the continuation of research using a precautionary approach. The precautionary approach is a notion that an action must first and foremost avoid doing any harm. And the proponents of an action must demonstrate this avoidance before any action can be taken. And for me, here is where the road forks tonight. Today, each component that determines the fate of this planet and its people are precariously poised. Upsetting one piece will have disastrous consequences. Maybe more for one segment of the population more than the other, but disastrous nonetheless. In these times of uncertainties, where global leaders can't agree to proceed with precaution on a technology that we already know will have negative consequences, that's where I'd say that any efforts to propagate this technology is crazy.
1: Here to make his closing statement against this resolution from UCLA, Ted Parson. Time is everything
0: in dealing with climate change because it moves so slowly relative to human perceptions and plans. Climate change is a train wreck happening in slow motion. Visualize that. Be cinematic. If we were having this debate in 1990, I'd be on the other side. We knew enough by then to warrant strong action to cut emissions, and if we'd started then, we would have had time to stop the train. But it's 2019. And the 30 years of... um, Delay has let that opportunity slip out of reach. It is still possible to hold climate change to manageable limits, but it's no longer possible to do this confidently, relying only on technologies and policies that are familiar, comfortable and controversial. Everything we do as a human society has technology, and it has behaviour, and every environmental problem that has been adequately managed so far has been managed to a substantial degree by the deployment of changed and new uh, technology. Why is the air in my home city of Los Angeles so clean now, when in the 1970s it was so dirty? Technological changes driven by rational public policy. As for political folly, it's like I don't want to yield anything to our opponents in my recognition of political folly, but you have to make the case that, it w- that political decision-making would be either more vicious or its consequences more severe in a world that has knowledge about climate engineering or geoengineering than in one that doesn't. And I don't think that's an easy case to make, and I don't think they've made it. Um, Geoengineering needs scientific research to inform its capabilities and risks, and it needs serious critical investigation of how to govern it competently, prudently, legitimately, and fairly, and how to integrate it into a coherent, effective climate change response. To call it crazy is to block this needed investigation, and to court severe and
1: unnecessary risks. The resolution, again, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Here making his closing statement in support of the resolution, Clive Hamilton, author of Earth Masters,
3: The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering, Clive Hamilton. I think this debate really comes down to how you understand uh, power and the way that societies work. Technologies aren't neutral. With solar geoengineering it's highly likely that the climatic uh, preferences of rich white people will prevail. Uh, Incidentally, the same people who are largely responsible for bringing on the climate crisis. Uh, Take this story, which I tore out of the uh, USA Today. Uh, The headline is, Facial ID Tools Show Bias. And the story is, a growing body of research shows that artificial intelligence technologies are rife with biases and discrimination. The people building these technologies are overwhelmingly white and male. Those who control powerful technologies use it to accumulate more power. That's how the world works, even if we'd love that it were otherwise. And so we uh, would endorse the powerful words of one of the United States' most uh, eminent climate scientists, Ray-Pierre Humbert, formerly of the University of Chicago and now at the University of Oxford. For him, crazy is too mild a word. Solar geoengineering, he said, is wildly, utterly, howlingly barking mad. Thank you, Clive Hamilton. And here, making his closing statement against the
1: resolution, David Keith, professor at Harvard and founder of Carbon Engineering. David Keith. Some of you may think that this technology should never
4: be used under any circumstance. Some may think we should have a serious research effort. None of us is making the decision. This decision will get made decades from now by the next generation. It will be considered. Some government, maybe China, after a monsoon causes the crops to fail because geoengineering actually can help with that. Maybe Indonesia, after a heat wave kills 100,000 people. Maybe the United States, after a Category 5 hurricane hits this place, this city, head on. It will be considered. Suppose our opponents keep winning. Suppose solar geoengineering stays in its crazy corner. We can't bind our children's hands. The decisions about deployment will still be made, but they will be made without adequate understanding of what the risks are, without exploration of technologies that could substantially reduce those risks, without knowledge about how to monitor adequately, and without enough time for nations to discuss how they might govern this technology. A vote for the resolution is a vote that says you are confident that this should never be used. That's what crazy means. But I don't know where that confidence could come from. I think that is overconfidence, overconfidence to the point of hubris.
1: Thank you, David Keith. And that concludes round three of this debate where the resolution is engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. And now it's time to learn which side you have found to be the most persuasive. We give victory to the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second vote. The resolution is this, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. On the first vote, 24% of you agreed with the resolution. That means they think that solar geoengineering is a crazy idea. 37% voted against the resolution. That's the side that David and Ted were arguing here tonight. 39% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, their first vote was 24%. Their second vote was 19%. They lost five percentage points. The team arguing against the resolution, David and Ted, their first vote was 37%. Their second vote was 75%. They pulled up 38 percentage points. That makes them the winner. The team arguing against the resolution that engineering social radiation is a crazy idea, our winner. Our congratulations to them, but our congratulations to all four of these debaters. Thank you very much. From me, John Donvan, we'll see you next time. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation and by supporters of Open to Debate. Open to Debate is also made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman, Clea Connor is CEO, Leah Mathew is our chief content officer, and I'm your host, John Donvan.